Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and you're listening to the Fairy and Fantasy class. Welcome to Fairy and Fantasy, episode 31. This time, Professor Olson gives us a little more of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and begins with Peter Beagle's The Last Unicorn, chapters 1 through 4. Okay, I want to start off with two very quick um, final notes about uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I, sort of, I felt like we kind of just ended right in the middle of something last time, and I wanted to just sort of tidy that up a tiny bit, though I don't want to steal too much time uh, away from Peter Beagle. Oh, one last comment on the deep magic and the deeper magic, which is where we ended last time. Um, this, I think there are several things that are interesting about this. I mean, I think the larger thing we can see operating here, the way this seems to be working in this story, is to, it, that this is pointing to a kind of moral framework, a moral framework, you know, a kind of spiritual law or moral law that the witch and Aslan are both aware of. Um, and the patterns between the two of them seem relatively clear and also relatively familiar, um, certainly from the perspective of Christian theology. The deep magic from the dawn of time points to crime and punishment, points to, uh, points to sin and the consequence of sin, that when, when, bad, when, when evil is done, then there are consequences to that. Um, and, you know, and, and, and death is the rightful consequence of that. But then the deeper magic from before the dawn of time, the moral law which precedes that law of justice, is the law of grace, that is, that redemption. Uh, the groundwork of redemption is laid prior even to the establishment uh, of the, ju- the, the moral law of justice. Um, and I think that, I mean, the, the way that he does that is, is, is very interesting, and I think the way that he weighs it out um, is... Uh, works very well. One of the things that I find most interesting about it, and we're not going to have a whole lot of time to talk about it, but I just thought I would note that I think anyway it's interesting, is basically his use of the word magic to characterize this. Um, you know, one question which in some ways, in some, from some angles we've talked about a tiny bit, is, you know, that Narnia is a magical kingdom. In what sense is it a magical kingdom, exactly? Uh, some magic seems to happen there. Some people do magic, but it's not just like a place where people cast spells. The witch is the only one that we really see performing what is obviously magic. Um, Aslan's magic works differently. Father Christmas's magic works differently. Um... And here we see the deep magic and the deeper magic, the foundational magical principles of Narnia, uh, turn out to be something which look like and sound like moral laws. And I think that that connection between magic and that larger um, moral and spiritual framework is kind of interesting, right? I was going to say we could say it's a magical kingdom in the sense that magic is actually part of its foundational law. Physics is part of our foundation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, yeah, and, and magic, magic is involved, in the sense that there are creatures which are kind of magical creatures. I mean, like fawns and, and dryads are magical creatures, and they live there, and so therefore it's a magical kingdom. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think the, the, the sort of how foundational that is. But again, when you look at the, in many ways, the similarity, again, especially from a Christian theological standpoint, between the deep magic and the deeper magic, um, and the Christian concept of, in fact, the moral framework that underlies our world, um, then the characterization of that as magic, I think, 
um, it just becomes becomes interesting and almost an alternative way of looking at what 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 kind of amounts to a similar thing. Jordan, um, if I could draw on bigger stories for a moment, I'm not sure that. Well, obviously Lewis thinks magic is the way to him, but um, for what applies here, but uh, in terms of what's going on, it applies to this kind of principle in general. I'm not sure it is because magic often is something that's worked or you know an, an effect. Was be, be sort of air and maniac we were discussing. Yeah. It seems to be more of a, a very fast in nature. And I, I can't remember if enchantment does something applies or apply here, but I, I, uh, it seems that like there's something similar to, to a, another term that implies a difference between like the work magic the Emperor reality clearly he's, you know, placing up that <coughs> the world and the universe as, they, as, as he created or made or whatever he does. I haven't read the rest of the books, so... Um, but... I think things like the, the inherent, you know, grounding of Narnia in magic made me to get a, a different term for that than, than, than that which works, because I think there's, there's a difference between the, the very aura and presence of, of the, the wondrous and the marvelous versus the effects of some, someone's will. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And is, as is fairly typical of the difference in interest and temper between Lewis and Tolkien, Tolkien was really interested in these definitions and really, at various points, both in his essays and in his stories themselves, puts pressure on this. What exactly is magic? What things do people call magic? What are they right to call magic? What should be considered something else? Um, and Lewis's use of the term here is clearly much broader brush um, and less precisely meant and precisely defined. Uh, than, than Tolkien would have defined it, certainly. But I agree, it's hard. I, it's, it's hard. Uh, I mean, I, I, um, I had to forcibly restrain myself from quoting what Galadriel says to Sam Kamji in The Fellowship of the Ring when I was talking about the White Witch's magic there. But I, but I did. So, it's, uh, so <laughs> that was good. Um, but no, it's, it is, I mean, that, that, that is a very natural uh, sort of thing to be thinking about, I think. Um, the second thing that I wanted to touch on, uh, or just sort of wave at as we leave <laughs> Lewis behind, um, is a, a thing that I waved at briefly once before, but I wanted to at least make a second wave, uh, and that is the role of the human children in this magical kingdom. They are on the one, on, on the one hand, aliens, but also, but there's, I mean, certainly if we think back in contrast to Smith and Smith's relationship with the fairy world. It is very different from the relationship between the Pevensies and the, and the, the magical world that they find themselves in. Smith presumed upon the passport that he was given. He's given a passport into fairy, and he presumes that this gives him certain rights to explore and to find things and to go wherever he wants and finds in the end that he was transgressing, which of course he had hints of prior uh, from the, the, the whole uh, the whole birch tree incident and the, um, and then of course his rebuke by the fairy queen. With Narnia, things are quite different. Um, there is a sense from the beginning that they have a place here, that this is in a sense their place. Uh, and they are not merely visitors who are being graciously tolerated. Um, in, we can see this in the legends about them. And certainly once we hear the prophecies, we see that they are in fact destined not only to arrive at this place, not only to be given a kind of passport, but to live here 
uh, and to rule here, um, at least for a time, and of course really quite a long time, um, in the Narnian time frame. Um, so not only do they have a role, but, but, but their role is sovereignty. They are, they are appointed. The sons of Adam and daughters of Eve are appointed to rule over this kingdom. Um, and we will find that this is something that persists um, through the rest of the, of, the, of the series of Narnian books, if we continue to read them. Um, it's in, and Kelly, you asked about this before, it's in Prince Caspian when a, a, a character makes the comment that Narnia is never really right when there isn't a son of Adam uh, or daughter of Eve ruling um, the country. So they have this, not only do they have a kind of right to be here far uh, surpassing Smith's right to be in fairy, but they have, they, have, they have rulership. Not ownership, but rulership there. Um, and yet, at the same time, it's not like this is their place. It's not like they have left England behind and come to the place which has truly been their home all along. That's not the case. Um, they return home to England, and England is their place. Um, and their whole time in Narnia turns out just to be one visit to Narnia. We are told at the end that they will likely make another one, um, that they may yet get into Narnia again, though not by that door. Um, but again, even that, it's like you may be allowed to go back and visit. So from the, from the England standpoint... From the terra cognita standpoint, their time in fairy is actually more fleeting and more inconsistent than Smith's. Smith at least gets a lifetime relationship of being able to go back and visit. They, on the one hand, live most of a lifetime in Narnia, but again, from the terra cognita standpoint, they make one, two of them are going to make two visits, two of them are going to make three visits, and that's it. Um, all of which are going to take no, none of our time. So, uh, and we'll find in the, in the very end, that is in the last battle, uh, uh, of course, when Lewis sort of makes his final, uh, his final philosophical and, uh, and theological grand gestures at the very end of the series. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite lines being Professor Kirk uh, muttering about how this is all in Plato and what do they teach them in these schools. Uh, but anyway... Um, that, that neither England nor Narnia are in fact their true homes. But, uh, but anyway, I, I think that, that their relationship with this magical world, with, with this fairy realm that they enter, is, is interesting. I mean, to, to, it's, it makes for an interesting comparison, I think, to compare the Pevensies and Narnia with Irene and her magical kingdom, both up and down, and, uh, and Smith and fairy. Um, but anyway, okay. Peter let's, let's, let's do Let's do The Last Unicorn. Um, the Last Unicorn, is, we are now resuming a kind of chronological basis. The final two works we're going to be reading this semester are genuinely the most recently written ones. Um, we begin... Uh, Peter Beagle is a kind of a transitional figure in some sense that is transitional from the early days of 20th century fantasy. People like Lord Dunsany and Tolkien and Lewis who were still really... Um, at least paving the path into the mainstream awareness uh, of fantasy literature in the 20th century. Again, it's not like these people were inventing even Dunsany. Uh, it's, it's not like they were inventing the fantasy genre. Certainly Lewis and Tolkien weren't. They were following, following in the footsteps of many, such as uh, Lord Dunsany and George MacDonald before him. But um, they, 
Lewis and Tolkien certainly played an enormous role in bringing it into uh, the, 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 the awareness of many. Now we begin to get sort of the successors. Peter Beagle being one of the successors of those generations, and him being in this, I think, a very interesting kind of intermediary position. Um, well, not a bridge that, that makes it sort of too grandiose, I think, but um, sort of responding to the, to the Lewis and Tolkien generation, um, but yet not in the newer, younger generation of fantasy writers who grew up um, you know, in completely in the post-Lewis and Tolkien world. Um, largely following in the footsteps especially of Tolkien. Um, during when uh, Professor Michael Drought visited my Tolkien class last year, um, those of you who are in the class may remember him making reference to the fact that it seems like almost all modern fantasy writers have to write at least one like, complete Tolkien rip-off book and kind of get that out of their system before they can then go and do their own thing. It seems like almost obligatory. Um, and there certainly is, uh, it has been hard for modern fantasy writers, as I say, who have, who have grown up in the post-Tolkien uh, uh, fantasy world um, to, to completely get out from under his shadow. And there are many who never fully emerge uh, from that shadow. Beagle wasn't, wasn't there. You know, I mean, he's publishing, The Last Unicorn is being published less than 15 years after the Lord of the Rings was published. So this is, uh, this is you know, it's, it's, it's after, um, and working with sort of the, the, you know, the popularity, the mainstream popularity that Tolkien has helped to win for fantasy, um, but yet not, not operating in a, in a totally post-Tolkien and Lewis uh, paradigm as the later ones will be. Of course, our final book, Garth Nix and Sabriel, um, was written in the last decade, so that's sort of our, our, our one example of, of that sort of definitively uh, you know, sort of the recent generation of, uh, of, of fantasy stuff. Now, what do you notice about people? What struck you? I'm just, I want to start with questions of complete vagueness. There are a bunch of things I'd like to talk about, uh, but rather than just kind of dictating that, I, I, especially at this point in the semester, you know, we've been reading a lot of things, you know, we've seen, we've been seeing a lot of trends and noticing a lot of stuff, and so I'd just be interested to hear what kind of struck you. Even if it, it, this doesn't have to be mine, you don't have to be like, and let me share with you the brilliant insight which occurred to me while I was reading this book. Any question that you had, a trend that you noticed, if you don't know what to say about it, um, just give us a topic to talk about. Kat, what did you notice? He's really obsessed with the sea. The sea, yes. The sea is going to be, and, and that's going to get worse, not better, uh, over the course of the rest of this book. That is, that is to say, I think that you're really picking up on an important motif here in this book. Um, where do we first hear of it? <coughs> What's our first reference to the sea? Remember? The description of the unicorn. The description of the unicorn, her color, right? She moved in the shadow of the sea, her tail's below the sea foam. Exactly. Well, it used to be the color of sea foam. Yes, now it's the color of what, like, snow in the moonlight, right? Um, <coughs> Kudoi, uh, color description that doesn't tell us so much about color as about other things. Um, but, uh, good, good. So now, I, I, mean, I think that that's, we're going to see, the C is going to be uh, very important, uh, certainly, as we move towards the end of this book. So that's certainly 
certainly a thing to notice, and, uh, and, I, and we'll definitely come back to that. What is the connection between unicorns and the sea? Um, we see that connection established on page one. Um, what is Beagle suggesting by connecting unicorns to the sea as he does? So I think that that's a, that's a, a, a great... Great observation. Far too early for us to come to conclusions about that, but uh, but you know we should definitely flag that. Yeah, Jordan. Um, I was discussing the book with Moto earlier, and she made a really interesting point that incidentally makes me want to punch one of the book you always quoted. But um... <laughs> oh, uh, the, the, the 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 puff uh, things in the front. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Someone she made the point that the unicorn is not remotely human, and that's a strength of the book. That she doesn't feel human when you read it, and then. The viewers is a class that you can completely imagine a human. Like, you missed the point. <laughs> but she, she also made the point that this makes the human not relatable, but in the sense that we use the word that it's still a great book, just proves a lot of, you know, common literary theory. You know, the unicorn is not relatable. She's a unicorn. You can't relate to being a unicorn because you don't know. Right. Right. It's, it's an agreement with you, one. I'll say that. Oh, yes, the room more one. Here at the top, She becomes briefly agonizing with you. Well, she isn't. Well, maybe that's that her agony. Yeah, I mean, I guess agonizingly in one sense. Uh, sure. Um, yeah. Well, that, of course certainly is another thing to pay attention to, which even in the first four chapters we're nudged towards, that is thinking about the relationship between humanity and unicornity. Uh, Unicornification? Well, no, because that that would be the process of turning somebody into a unicorn. So, uh, uh, no, like, yeah. Unicornity? Unicornity. No, no, no. Like, to, like, you know, like oh, the unicornity. <laughs> yeah, it would, yeah, exactly. So, thinking about the, you know, what it means to be a unicorn, what it means to be human, what are the relationships between those two things? Not just the relationships between unicorns and people, though that, of course, is one of the things which will certainly help us think about this. How do unicorns relate to people and people relate to unicorns? Even some of the questions that she has in mind. Like, for instance, when the guy, the, the, the old fat guy who first sees her and tries to catch her with his belt, right? The question that she asks before she realizes that he doesn't even recognize that she's a unicorn. And she's like, what, what, like, what are you hunting me for? Like, what, do you, what, what are you trying to gain here? She doesn't understand. And that is, she has a sense, a conception of what is to be gained from hunting unicorns and is wondering, like, what paradigm do you fit in? It's before she has her moment where she's like, holy crap, you don't even know I'm a unicorn, do you? Um, that is, all of the paradigms that I had are kind of blown here. Um, but, but, but that is, I mean, she asks that question, and I think it's therefore appropriate for us to ask that question. What, you know, as, and as, you know, when, 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 when Schmendrick, whose name I shall attempt to say with a straight face during the next <laughs> four classes, um, Peter Beagle, I believe, chose the name to be comedic. I mean, it's not supposed to sound not silly. Um, Schmendrick is a pretty, and that—that that is how it is. How it is pronounced. Um, for those of you who are like me, audiobook consumers, uh, the only audio version of this that exists is read by Peter Beagle himself. So, 
so I can give authoritative uh, uh, pronunciations of these, of these names. Um, and there are actually several other things. For instance, in the, the encounter that she has with the butterfly, um, when the butterfly is doing his like jumbled together quotations of things, um, when Peter Beagle reads that, he sings the butterfly's lines. Um, so the butterfly is definitely chanting and at times actually singing. Um, I almost said melodically, but that's a strong word. Uh, anyway, it's 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 singing. So I think that there's anyway there there there, there, there are some, some cool things to be gained from the audiobook version. Schmendrick, when Schmendrick asks for his boon as as his boon to be taken uh, with her and to to be able to accompany her on her journey, I think that's another moment where we can see this. Well, I don't know what. Um, anyway, this issue of being raised. That is, what do humans want from unicorns? What do unicorns want from humans? And he tells her the story of the unicorn that was turned into a human, and he thinks, she thinks that was appalling. Right? Why did, they, why did, they, why did Nico the magician turn the, or Nico, I think it's Nico actually, turn the unicorn into a human? Do you remember, John? Yeah, it was it saved his life, right? The hunters were coming in with their bows, and he turned it into, turned him into a handsome prince, and he lived happily ever after with the princess. And the unicorn's like, "That's so sad. What a sad story." Of course, you see that, but it's just one joke. But you see that the, the irony there, right? The story that Schmendrick tells is a fairy tale that could totally be in line. And the unicorn turned into a handsome prince, and the two of them got married and lived happily ever after and had fine and noble offspring who, like, became a line of famous kings and whatever. Hooray! Right? Isn't that offspring? No, they didn't have offspring. Anyway. Well, I'm trying to make it even happier. Whatever. (laughs) The point is they were happy, and it was good, sort of. But, no. Um, The unicorn's like, that's not a happy thing. It doesn't sound like happy ever after. Well, she does have, um, like, in conjunction with that, she does have trouble even thinking about death. And I remember there's a really cool point, and, well, no, I think it's reading ahead, but, like, when she's in the cage and she's watching... Yeah, um, no, the cage is, L- the cage is in today's video. Yeah, L.A. Um, yes. Um, and she's just absolutely horrified by the decay. Yes. Final yes. Cage. Her, uh, <coughs> experience of age, um, is, a, is an important moment for her. That's her first personal brush with mortality, with what it would be like um, to be like a human. Um, so, no, I mean, I do think that this is, uh, this is definitely an interesting theme. Um, definitely, again, definitely something else to be, to be watching as we go. Other things? Other themes we should hit on? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's sort of like um, Lewis in the sense that, well, I mean, I'm not completely sure where the mythologies are coming from, again, because I don't really know much about them, but like the mix of like creatures just sort of pulling from wherever. Yeah, especially in uh, Mommy Fortuna's Midnight Carnival. Yeah. Right. Um, now, that, of course, on the one hand, is a mishmash because it's fake, right? The Asgard serpent isn't really there. 
the, 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 the spider isn't really a rat. Um, but the harpy's right there. <coughs> and who's the harpy? Selena. Yes, yes, Selena or Selena the harpy. Who is she? Foundations quiz. <coughs> Some of you just read this last week. <laughs> Who is she? Where do we meet her? Peter Buko is an excellent foundation today. Remember the book? She fought young and that's uh, some of the most men- it mentions the very story in the yeah, she, she, she features in the story of the Argonauts. Though we most famously meet her in the Aeneid. Right. She's the leader of the harpies who come down in the valley. Yeah, that's her. That's her. That's her. She's uh, much fiercer in this book. Um, though, I mean, who knows? Aeneas is pretty studly, so maybe she was just as fierce, but, uh, you know, wasn't going to... We're going to try it on with uh, Aeneas and, and his voice, whereas Mommy Fortuna, she's fine with that. Um, yeah, certainly, but, but Christine, getting back to your point, there is certainly, uh, it's, I think it's not exactly like Lewis in the sense of these actual elements being spliced together. I mean, the centerpiece, when we talk about the actual magical things he, uh, in this story, um, the real kind of fairy, the actual fairy tale elements, as opposed to the illusory ones. Um, you know, you've got the unicorn, of course, as the, cent- as the centerpiece. We do have, apparently, human magicians being able to, we've got the illusions of Mami Fortuna, which, which do clearly have power. Uh, Schmendrick, who can do magic, um, not predictably and not well, but actual magic is performed by him. Um, and then we have the Red Bull. Um, Which makes me every time. This, of course, predates by many decades. <laughs> beverage. <laughs> uh, and you must simply suppress uh, associations with the beverage. Uh, yeah. But anyway, um, but you need to necessarily suppress connections to the black. <laughs> Here we go again. Oh, come on, now. I mean, I thought that was just obvious. But anyway, <laughs> we, don't, we don't have to talk about that yet. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I do think so. In some ways, I think we can. It, it seems, in some ways, sort of a little more consistent. Uh, a little more consistent in that way than Lewis is, but I think even just the fact, even thinking of it in terms of, as in Lewis, the relationship between the magical world and stories about the magical world, this is a work that is being built on the foundation of stories, some mythological stories and some fairy tales. We get references and reminders of fairy tale traditions in addition to mythological traditions like Celino, the harpy from especially the Indian, or, uh, or Arachne. We also get um, 
you know, the, not only the sort of pseudo fairy tale of the unicorn turned into a prince, but also the the the, the reference that the blue butterfly throws out to Rumpelstiltskin. <coughs> know who I am, and the butterfly says, Rumpelstiltskin, right? I mean, again, there are a bunch of things like that, which just always kind of give us these little cues to, 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 to remember. We are, we are operating in a, sorry, a, kind of fanti- a, a kind of fairy tale world, that this, those fairy tale stories are definitely sort of stories which inform this, and we hear some of these stories, some of the local stories, that is like the story of the hunter's grandmother who once met a unicorn, um, uh, you know these these stories do kind of come through, and one of the things that we see is again the theme of what do people believe, what can people perceive, right? Um, and this especially in Mommy Fortuna's Midnight Carnival. Um, since I mentioned the butterfly, what did you make of the butterfly? <laughs> I felt like there were several important things mixed in with a whole bunch of nonsense meant to throw us. Yep. Yep, it is. I mean, and it's clearly these few things which emerge, including, I mean, this is where the unicorn learns the crucial thing, right? This is where she first gets the information. She's worried that the unicorns are gone, that she is, in fact, the last unicorn. But this, she just begins worrying that when she overhears the hunters saying that you never see unicorns anymore. But as, as we see after that, she's debating with herself, well, maybe that just means that they don't see them, right? I'd know it, surely, if all the other unicorns are gone. But uh, it turns out, actually, that they are gone. And this is the first hint that we get of where they went and what happened to them. She talks about the red bull. Chased them away. The red bull came behind them. Um... So yeah, it's, and it's out of this what seems like static, what seems like nonsense. It is nonsense, um, but it's a particular kind of nonsense. It's not, it's not, the nonsense that the butterfly says is not just random words. It's not just static. What is it? Surely even if you couldn't make sense of it, you recognized some of the things that the butterfly says. There are things that the butterfly is part of. So, like, um, we're almost still confused with the story. One that struck me was Take the A Train. Take the A Train, yeah. And I got really confused. I was like, what time period is this? <laughs> 1968. Take the A Train, yeah. I am a roving gambler. Yeah. This song about Mary Jane. Most of these are songs, snippets of songs of wildly different genres, sometimes traditional rhymes, sometimes comparatively contemporary <coughs> songs, take the age range. Um, and they're all, and sometimes from advertising jingles and things, and they're all kind of garbled together, but it's almost all song. And then what emerges, you know, kind of you say, these are things that she's heard, or he. It's a he. Okay. The other thing that I find really interesting that the butterfly says is the dream that he had. Remember the dream that he had? 
Because he had a dream that he was crawling along the ground. Which, of course, he was. <laughs> he was a caterpillar. Um, so some of it is memory, it seems. But obviously, the butterfly is not very good at synthesizing experience. In a sense, in some ways, the butterfly seems almost the opposite of the unicorn. The first thing that the unicorn draws attention to when she meets the butterfly is how transitory the butterfly is. As and why he's out flying, they will take cold and die before his time. Wins his time almost immediately. He's not going to live very long. Very short lifespan. So you have on the one hand this immortal, unchanging being speaking to this extremely ephemeral little being who has almost no, it seems, almost no synthetic powers. That is, he's been around for a little bit, he's heard these things, and he repeats them, these songs, mostly. But it doesn't understand anything that it's saying. And the unicorn has this wider view. But the unicorn doesn't know anything. Because the unicorn hasn't heard anything in centuries. Because the unicorn has been completely isolated. So again, I, I think that the, the butterfly and unicorn are really kind of interesting, uninteresting pairing there. Um, and, of course, it's the butterfly who gives this information to, to the unicorn. More on, more on the Midnight Carnival. How does Mommy Fortuna's <coughs> carnival work? It's got nine cages, right? What's the general rule? How do, how do the majority of Mommy Fortuna's exhibits work? Taylor? Um, she takes an animal that is vaguely similar to whatever mythological creature she's uh, trying to show off. <coughs> she does an illusion enchantment that makes everybody who sees it believe that it is that thing. Okay. So it's, it's illusion. And it, it is interesting that it is at least a little bit connected to reality. Right, we're going to make an illusion of Cerberus, we're going to, but we're not going to make an illusion of Cerberus either, like out of thin air. It's not like an empty cage with an illusion of Cerberus in it, nor is there like a bunny rabbit with an illusion of Cerberus. It's a, it's a, it's a dog. It's a real dog. And the manticore is a real lion. Uh, and the snake's a real snake. And Arachne's a real spider. Um... So what is happening is she is taking real things. What's she doing exactly? Is she changing the things? What is she changing exactly? The spectator's perception of the thing. So it's all based on belief, isn't it? The magic seems to work as much on the people as on. It's not really magic that she's performing on. It's not, I'm going to take this dog, I'm going to cast a spell on this dog so that this dog looks like Cerberus. The dog's really there. And if you look through it, Ashmendrick urges the unicorn to look through it, you can see the real dog still there. The dog hasn't changed. Its appearance hasn't changed. What changes is what the people see. And we can see her messing, you know, the, the sort of the closest description we get of her messing with people's perception and belief is the effect of her, that is, Mommy Fortuna's performance as Ellie, old age, upon the unicorn herself, right? Her own perceptions, even of herself and her own experience, are altered. 
by the magic of Mommy Fortuna there. She hasn't cast a spell on the unicorn. Um, she doesn't actually change the unicorn. She changes how the unicorn sees and perceives even her own self there in that moment. So that does seem to be how these operate. But now there are several different kinds of really important exceptions to the rule of Mommy Fortuna's karma. Right? That is, the rule is some kind of mundane but comparable animal which is being... And the, the, the spectator's perception of it is being altered so that it looks like this fantastic figure. But what are the exceptions? Aaron? The harpy, the unicorn, and Schmendrick. Yeah. Schmendrick is interesting. He's, of course, not on display, but he's part of the show. Uh, and he is... You know, everything that's an exception is an exception in a different way, which I think is really interesting. And we can kind of take them case by case. Schmendrick is an exception. How? How is Schmendrick unlike the rest of these? He is, there's, there's some similarity, right? He's a bungling uh, guy who wants to be a magician and says he's a great magician. Doesn't really seem to be a great magician. But again, like the animals, like the dog, like the lion, it's not... Hey, I'm gonna like just take some random dude and say, "Hey, you're a great magician," just and deceive the people with that. He's just like uh, you know, as the manticore is described, as it's a it's a perfectly good lion, right? It's just not a manticore. So Schmendrick is a well, it's not a perfectly good magician, but he is a kind of magician. Um, But what's different? What else is different about him? He points to differences in perception and appearance, too. What's, what's Schmendrick's favorite phrase? What does he always say about himself? Huh? I am older than I see. I am older than I see. Right? I am older than I appear. Yeah. I'm older than I see. Because his face looks really young. So he is suggesting... What you are seeing is just an appearance. He is Shrendrick the magician, the last of the red hot swamis. Don't ask, I haven't the faintest idea what that means. <laughs> Not even a vague clue as to what the last of the red hot swamis are. Um, and frankly, I try not to speculate about it. But um, anyway, he, so he's with him. He argues, or he claims at various points, that it's almost the opposite, right? He, you look at him and you perceive, instead of looking at the lion and perceiving a manticore, you're looking at a manticore and perceiving a lion, right? You're looking at the great magician and, 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 and you're only, you think that I'm Schmendrick the bungler who looks really old, or looks really young and incompetent, but really, I'm older than I look. I am this great person. But he, of course, he doesn't himself really believe. Other exceptions. The harpy. Clear exception. She's real and dangerous. Yeah. Like all the creatures there. She's probably, as they keep saying, the worst one to have in a cage. Yes. That was her first mistake. Uh, says. Right? To try to actually keep the real harpy. 
The harpy is real. There is no illusion. When people look at the harpy, they are actually seeing the real harpy. She really is what everybody thinks she is. And in the end, she does what Shmendrick and the Unicorn believe she's really going to do, which is bust out and eat Mommy Fortuna uh, and her lackey who takes a long time to answer riddles. Um, other exceptions? Well, I was going to point out that the one thing that Hopi isn't is what Mommy Fortuna thinks she is, which is, you know, captive. Yeah, yeah. But there you could say the difference is not even in the harpy, but in Mommy Fortuna's understanding of herself. She believes that she can hold her, and that if she gets out, she'll just capture her again. Um, not so, it turns out. <laughs> yeah. I got the impression that she had this sense of uh, that the harpy would at some point see the Because when she talks to the harpy every, you know, every day when she goes and checks on the lock, she says, not yet, not yet. And I, was, I took that to be the, like, not yet. I know you're eventually going to get out. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she she has that moment where she talks a good game. She's like, oh yeah, if she gets out, I'll capture it again. But yeah, maybe maybe she doesn't really herself entirely believe that. My favorite exception in Molly Fortuna's carnival, the spider. Uh, she believes in, in the illusion herself. Um, so even when the carnival is falling apart around her, uh, she's, she, the spider is going to stay there and sort of maintain this, I get this sense of decorum, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the last thing we hear from <coughs> this carnival is the spider weeping. Uh, love the spider. That is so cool. The unicorn, of course, is another exception, but also different. The unicorn, on the one hand, the unicorn seems like the harpy, right? That is, Mommy Fortuna has nine exhibits, two of which are real and seven of which are shams. Um, but there's a difference between those two, not just like the unicorn is nice and the harpy is not, but, but that is in, in, in their existence as exhibits. What's the difference between them? Is there a spell in the harpy, right? Yes, exactly. Although the unicorn, although she has what she said to me, she says, and look, here's the unicorn, and it is. She still has to do the illusion. Because when people, otherwise, when people look at it, they're just going to see a horse. The harpy has no illusion. They, they look at the harpy and they see a harpy. They look at the unicorn, they're going to see a horse. Unless she makes the illusion of what is, in fact, the real. That's one of the most complicated moments, I think, certainly in the first quarter of this book. Um, where we have this kind of examination of the relationship between belief uh, and fantasy, what the unicorns seem to represent to the humans, and why the hu- and, and, and the fact that the humans have such a the humans have such a, 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 a an interesting and significant relationship with unicorns, as one of the hunters says to the other hunter way back in the first pages. Uh, a, a line which kind of resonates through most of the rest of the book, I think. Would you call this age a good one for unicorns? Um, the answer seems to be <coughs> no. But of course, the follow-up is, 
Has there ever been one that was? Um, at least that's the question you can ask yourself. Anyhow, um, I gotta let you go. I didn't talk about one of the things I really wanted to talk about, which is Mommy Fortuna's song that she sings when she is in the form of Ellie, her three verses, um, which I think are really cool. <coughs> Maybe next time. That's all for this time. Next time is chapters 5 through 8 of The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.